This morning our reading from God's Holy Word comes from Mark chapter 6. We're in the midst of an ongoing series in the Gospel of Mark entitled Follow Me. It's a series uh, verse by verse as we make our way through this Gospel. I think we're in maybe 18, something like that, 18, 19 in this uh, series of, of messages and we come to a passage that uh, speaks, well, I, we actually read it earlier in our um, I mean, maybe one of the best summaries of where we're going to go today is that Hebrews 11 passage. If you've got your bulletin, just turn back real, real quickly to this. Hebrews chapter 11, that, that chapter 12, it just, just moves over from 11 into chapter 12, 12, 1 and 2. You'll see it there in the bottom of the reading. Note, notice the invitation of the writer of Hebrews here. He says, let us also lay aside... Every weight and sin which clings so closely. Okay, let us let's lay aside. So he's really using the metaphor of clothing here. He's saying, let's lay aside that which would weigh us down, that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Well, I think if you can just see that imagery there in Hebrews 11, I think you're actually seeing where it is Mark is taking us this morning in Mark chapter 6. In fact, the way we're going to look at these three stories in Mark 6, it's, it's too long of a section to do a, a total deep dive in each of the stories that are here. There's actually three different stories that we're about to read. So we're going to focus most of our attention on verses 14 to 29, which is the last of the story. It's actually the beheading story of of John the Baptist and, and Herod and, and Herodias. And we'll use that story mostly uh, illustratively um, to, to make um, the point of the importance of repentance. The, the grace, what the, the reformers, our forebears, Protestant reformers would call the grace of repentance. The evangelical grace of repentance. Meaning that that it's, it's God's grace that leads us to repentance. It's not something we can do though it is something we must do, it is something that He graciously must give us. And then as He gives it to us, we, we do it. We, we pursue it. And, and as we look at this word together, I want you to just ask the Lord, Lord, um, meet my conscience right now. Meet my heart in this word. And as this word is read and as we explore it together, ask the Lord to lead you in the grace of repentance. Because Martin Luther said that's the very center of the Christian life. It's the whole of the Christian life is a life of repentance, turning from our sin unto God and walking in the newness of life. So just prayerfully as we enter this word, let that prayer be on your heart. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. He, that is Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled 
because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed um, that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed uh, with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we would ask now through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would meet with us in this word. Come now and move among us and have your way in our midst. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I mentioned actually at the Lord's table in the earlier service a quote from William Shakespeare that had come to mind even this morning. A quote from Richard III, that 
um, play of Shakespeare's where Richard himself is actually uh, speaking. And he says, and I paraphrase, working from memory here, he says, my conscience has a thousand tongues. And, and each tongue tells a tale a several. And in each tale, I am the villain. <laughs> you catch what Shakespeare is saying through the voice of, of Richard III. The conscience, it's like a thousand tongue. It babbles all the time. It speaks to us all the time. And it has many tales. Tales of several. <laughs> it, can, it can tell the story of our, our lives. And it keeps telling it to us. And in all of its stories, I am the villain. I, in other words, of a guilty conscience. Richard III is speaking in that context. But how many of us in this room can immediately go, I get that. Uh, you know, Protestantism, the Reformers, in, were known as theologians of the conscience. In fact, when Martin Luther was gathered in 1521 before the Diet of Worms, which is where he had been excommunicated by the Pope and was now being asked to recant of his teachings, um, he stood before the, the council and interestingly he said what I don't think we would say. He used language I don't think we would, we would probably say in quite this way. But he says, I cannot and I will not recant. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Isn't that interesting? To go against conscience. He, he doesn't notice, speak directly of truth, though that's included in the statement. He, he speaks of conscience, meaning to say that it's not right for him to go against that which he believes personally to be true. It would be a lie to do so. It wouldn't just be wrong. It would lack integrity. It would be a lie. It would be sinful. Not just to not uphold that which is true, but to, but to because I personally believe it. It's not right. Notice what he also says. It's also not safe. I think it's an incredibly wise way to put it because I think Luther, Luther understood, right? He was a man who was plagued by conscience throughout almost all of his uh, life. He, he had become a monk, you remember, because he had, he had found himself in a, in a thunderstorm and was afraid he was going to die. And he called on the saints above to protect him. And if he was protected, he'd go into the monastery. And he was protected, and so he went into the monastery. I mean, this was a man who had a very sensitive conscience. He'd been exploring a way to get out from under the sense of a guilty conscience for a long period of time. That's why the Reformation, in many ways, spoke to the realities of the importance of someone not just simply mouthing the forms of worship or ritual, but that they being part and parcel of our hearts. That's why when you come here and we are in worship each week and we, have, we go through the forms of worship or the elements of worship, we're not merely going through the motions, so to speak, but we're seeking to speak what? To the heart. In the passages before us, there's three different stories. There's actually three different ministries. We could put it that way. There's Jesus' ministry that's put on display in the first six verses. There's the disciples' ministry. They're sent out two by two, which is noted in the text. In the latter half of verse 6 all the way to verse 13. 
And then John the Baptist's ministry is really focused on in verse 14 to the end of the text. It's the long narrative, verses 14 to, to 29. But I want you to see a theme because we only have time to really look at this particular theme. But I think it's the theme that Mark is trying to introduce us to in this second part of his gospel. It's, it's the, this theme of repentance and the recognition of opposition that comes in the presenting of the gospel. That, that everywhere the gospel went, it wasn't just immediately embraced as good news by everybody. Jesus is opening up the word here in Nazareth, and we're told there in, in verse 3 that the people are offended at him. When the disciples are being sent out in the Galilee into various towns, he prepares them for people not to receive them, not to listen to them. He actually says, when they don't, just shake the dust off of your sandals as you head out of town as a testimony against them. It's going to happen. People are not going to like the things that you say. And then we see this illustration of John the Baptist who preached this gospel of repentance. And we see people get mad. They get murderously mad. And ultimately, his head ends up on a platter because he preached the gospel. This is why in the, the title of the message this morning, I called it Perils, how uh, the ministry can get you killed, right? How the ministry can get you, get you killed. How there's a threat and there's an opposition and an offense that's embedded in this thing called the good news. And I want to just give it up front the reason there's an offense is that in order to get to the good news about Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, you've got to come to terms with the bad news about you. And most of us get stuck there. And some of us get really angry there. I must say, I think that's happening in Nazareth when Jesus is there. They're offended, I think, by the, the fact that he is the carpenter coming to tell them the truth. Notice he's described as the carpenter. It's the only place in the scripture he's described that way. He's, he's the man that we went to to get our tables fixed. You know? And now he's like proclaiming news and calling us to repent. Like, who is this guy? Right? It's offensive. And the disciples, you know, here, here, here's another stellar group of professionals, tax collectors, fishermen, who are going to go now call people to repentance. Right? It's very offensive. Here's John the Baptist. What's John doing? Who's he speaking to in this text? A king and a queen. <laughs> Maybe he needs to be put in his place, right? Who is he? You know, do you kind of hear the Z snap here, you know, with Herodias in this passage? Who is he to be speaking to us like this, right? It's pricking the conscience. That's the work of Christian preaching. It's the, work of, it's the work of ministry. It's why, I mean, at some level, it's not always a testimony of a faithful gospel presentation that you just, it felt so good. It was so warm. It was so wonderful, right? It's not always a testimony uh, that God is at work with it. That's the emotional response or spiritual response. There's times where we need to, as the Puritans would say, have our consciences ripped up. By the word of God. John does that here. And what I would like to suggest to you is that the holy offense of repentance, the holy offense of a call to repentance is part of what we're being welcomed into here this morning before the text. You see, John had personally come to King Herod and he, he said, listen to me. You have taken your brother's wife, your brother's Philip, You've seized his wife. 
you've made his wife your own wife. It's wrong. It's a sin. You need to repent and you need to turn to God. That's what he had done. He denounced, in other words, the sexual sin, the adultery, the immorality of King Herod. And in doing so, underneath that, I want you to see what John is doing because this is how Christian ministry works and it's what I hope is at work in our hearts this morning. In that, there's something John's assuming. He's assuming that Herod has a conscience. (laughs) He's assuming that Herod can be persuaded and convinced that that is wrong and that something inside of Herod could actually say, man, you're right. I need, to do, I need to turn from this. Now, that work of conscience is really important because, well, it's something we don't talk about a lot, but it's something we always assume, right? Like, what, what do you think of when you think of conscience? Where some of you go, well, I think of Pinocchio, right? You know, I, think, I think that I should, you know, let your conscience be your guide, right? Like some of you are thinking along those lines. Some of you may be thinking of like, you know, you know a Tom and Jerry, uh, you know, cartoon where you've got the little white angel. Is it on the right or the left shoulder? I don't remember. It's on the white, let me just say the left shoulder. The white angel is whispering like, you should do this. And then there's the red devil, right, who's on this shoulder. And they always do what the red devil says. And we all go, you shouldn't do what the red devil says. You should be doing what the white angel But they do it anyway, right? We think of it because in many ways that's the existential experience of how the conscience works. I've appealed to the Puritans a couple of times, but they referred to this as the inner voice. In fact, Richard Baxter referred to it as, the, as God's spy... In our bosom. God's spy. Meaning it's, it's, it's the watchfulness. The watchman inside of us. That's making judgments and instructions. Making us feel bad for the things that we do wrong. And making us feel excused when we do the right things. And putting us at peace. Very simply, conscience is just someone's sense of right and wrong. Now, C.S. Lewis, I think, made the, the right point in Mere Christianity when he said not everybody's sense of right and wrong is exactly the same. You know, like ding, 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 right? Like we look out at the world today and we think to ourselves, huh, that's wrong, and they say it's absolutely right. Actually, where vice has become virtue. Like you can have an entire switch in terms of those categories, and, and vice versa, it can happen. What, but what Lewis noted was even when there is differences between the judgments of our conscience... What remains the same is that someone has one. <laughs> someone has at least a conscience. They may disagree on what's right and wrong, but they disagree that there is, they agree that there is a right and wrong. They may draw the lines differently, but they agree that there is one. Where does that come from, Lewis says? That's God's spy. It's the image of God working in you. It's the character of God being displayed. It's the law of God written on the heart of man. You see, that's actually what's going on in Herod's heart as John the Baptist is preaching to him. Now, why do I say that? Well, you'll notice in verse 20, um, John has been in a relationship with Herod. And for a number of times, we don't know the circumstances, John has preached to Herod. It could be publicly, it could be privately. It does seem there was some private engagement because it's very specific. You know, normally in a public setting, now I'm going to try to refrain from doing this today, of calling you out by person and mentioning your sin. And you all said, thank you, right? All right, right? So, so I'm thinking in many ways, publicly, he's probably in private speaking to Herod and going, hey, Herod, this is wrong, right? This is, this is sinful, um, 
In the midst of it, though, we're told, what's interesting with, with Herod is he heard, verse, verse uh, 20, he heard John gladly. Interesting. Like, I don't usually hear people gladly but around these things. But what he probably means is that John was always insightful. John always had things that made Herod think. Uh, John always had things that provoked him. And yet notice what it says. He heard him gladly, and yet he was greatly perplexed. Simultaneously. Now, now I, I, think, I think William Lane is correct when he, when he interprets the language perplexed as anguished. When, when Herod hears John preach and calls on him in repentance, he heard him. He was, he was almost captivated by his words. He was a little bit like moth to flame, like I can't get away from the attractiveness of what this man sets forward. And yet in his soul, he was going, there ain't no way I'm doing what it is he's telling me to do. He would listen to preaching. He would engage with Christian ministry but he would resist its call of conscience in his heart. He was concerned about what to do. He was morally in a dilemma. And it's likely that John here was regularly, in some way, shape, or form, pushing or pressing on the conscience of of Herod and and seeking to lead him to where he would be quit of his sin. He He would repent of his sin and he would turn into God for grace. Now, as you see in this text, that's the scenario of what's going on. At some point, John goes and, or excuse me, at some point, Herod goes and talks to his wife, Herodias. Yes, if you thought that was a male, that's okay. But it's actually a female, Herodias. Herodias is the stolen wife of, of Philip, his, his brother. So, you know, Christmas is weird. Christmas is weird with Herod and his family. All right. So so anyway, he goes and he steals the wife from from Philip. And as he does so, and as he draws this relationship in close, at some point he tells Herodias, it appears, hey, John addressed this, like our relationship. And he says that I should repent of this. Now, this is a moment where... You know, my mind wants to speculate if Herodias had said, shoot, he's, he's right. This is wrong. I, I need to go back to, to Philip. And, and yeah, we need, to, we need to cast our cares upon Christ. Would, ha, would Herod have potentially said, oh, I'm kind of feeling the same thing, right? And, and her willingness softened him in order to lead him, as is the case, to kindness. That's what Paul says, is the kindness of God. It's the welcome of God. It's the graciousness of God that leads us to repentance. Had that happened, maybe the story would be different. But you know, when he told Herodias, listen, John says we're in sin. We need to repent. She becomes furious. How dare he speak to the queen that way? Speak of the queen that way? Speak of you that way? And we're told that she held a grudge against him. That's the text. And wanted to kill him. Now, notice that Herod's like, we're not killing John. (laughs) He's like celebrity preacher number one over here. Like people really like this guy. It's a big deal if this were to happen. And then he says he's a righteous and holy man. Notice that with Herod. He acknowledges that. And what is Herod's fear? Why will he not kill John? 
Because he's concerned about the consequences for himself. I want you to see a pattern there in Herod. Because it's a pattern that often runs in our own hearts and lives. Why is it that Herod didn't kill John? He shouldn't kill John. Morally, that's correct. Okay, good decision. Why did he not kill John? He was focused on himself. Is that the right motivation? <laughs> no. In fact, it's the same reason, it's the same motivation why he stole Philip's wife. He was thinking about himself. There's a theme here in Herod's heart. That each time he comes to a conscience decision, a hard decision, he chooses as what's ever going to be personally expedient and beneficial for him. And so he won't kill John. So they, it's kind of halfway house. We're going to put John in prison. But Herodias says that's not enough. And she looks for an opportunity to turn the tables. And she gets it. She gets it you know, at a... At a, at a drunken nobleman's party celebrating Herod's birthday. Right? So, so Herod's birthday shows up. His noblemen, his military officers come. They're having a big to-do. And this is the opportunity that Herodias um, has been waiting for. She, she, he's got his guard down. He's under influence. We've got all the people around him that are going to put the kind of pressure he needs uh, in order to actually get the deed done with John. And so what does she do? Well, she does one of the most sort of disgusting things imaginable. She takes her own daughter. Uh, Josephus tells us that her daughter's name is Salome. Uh, he's, an, he's an early church historian, Jewish historian. He, it, probably in her middle teenage years, so think 15 here. And she sends in Salome to these drunken men with her uncle of whom she's married, who her mother is quasi-married to, to dance for them. Now what is Herodias doing? Herodias is actually quite the student of the human soul here. She knows the weakness of her so-called husband. This is a man who's been known to do very foolish things when sexually aroused. Stealing her brother's wife might be one of them. And now she's going to use that very weakness as a means by which to get what she wants. Salome dances in front of the group. And he is so elated at her dancing. And he calls her, notice the language, he calls over the girl. She's very young. And he promises to her anything she wants, right? You know, he's probably thinking she's going to ask for Skittles, right? I mean, she's 15 years age, right? She, you know, maybe a car, you know, I don't know. But, I mean, something, you know, she's young. Up to a half of my kingdom. And, of course, it's all been a plot. She goes back to her mother, and her mother seeds her with the mission and she says, you're going to ask for the head of John the Baptist. And we're told that she goes out with haste. There's a, sense of, there's a sense of plot and plan and unfolding and execution here. She goes out and she asks for the head of John the Baptist. And she asks for it on a platter, we're told. You like that, that detail? There's a bit of dark humor in that, you understand. There's a bit of black humor in that. Where are they at? A banquet. What do, they, what do they have all around them being served food? Platters. 
And it's, it's as if in the request she's saying, I want John's head on one of these platters to keep the party going. To, to keep the real victor, the real victory known here. And what do we see happens in Herod's heart in that moment? We're told he again, almost identical language, he is sorry. It's that anguished. He's back in this very difficult moment of conscience. What's he going to do? He has just been a played like a fool. He's walked right into the trap. And, and here is a great moment where, like, I ho- would hope, right? I would hope in that moment I'd be sane enough. But, of course, I'm not under the influence at this moment the way he is. I'm not in the pressure cooker of that moment as he is. But you would hope that in that moment you would say something like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, okay, what I said was dumb. That's off. We're not going to do that. That's wrong what you've just asked. Something else. I'll get the car. (laughs) But what does it say? Being fearful of the nobleman who heard the words that he had spoken, he didn't want to lose face. Now, what did Herod just do? He chose himself again. See how this works? He's done it over and over in this text. Every time it's about him. I don't want to lose faith. I don't want to do this. But it's worse. It's worse if I lose faith than that John loses his head. You see the judgment call there? That's the judgment of conscience going on. And at the center of Herod's structural decision-making universe... The center of that universe is Herod. Now, and here's what often happens, and I'd like to just make a quick note on this before moving on. What happens, I think, when we make our lives the center of the moral universe, meaning they were walking through life going, is this good for me or is it going to cost me? Do I I like this? Do I not like this? When, When that's our moral compass by which we're moving, we'll be willing to do horrendous things. But if our standards are revealed through the Word of God, matched up to the character of God, if our conscience are being bound to the revelation revealed by God, we want to honor, we want to please Him, we have found our identity in Him, we're going to constantly be asking the question, not do I like this or do I not like this, is what pleases my God? What, What can I do to please my God? Because I take my greatest pleasure in the delight of my God. You see, that's where the treasure has to go. And that hasn't happened here. We haven't seen that happen here in the heart of of Herod. And so again, he's faced with this matter of conscience. And he fails. He sends for the executioner. John the Baptist's head is removed. It's brought in on the platter first to Salome and then ultimately to, to Herodias, who really is the one who wanted it. Now, and I just want to make, again, quickly, we're almost done. I want to make the note, all of this happened because John preached the gospel. You get that, right? All of it happened is because he preached the gospel. Now, that should, that should in one sense, send a bit of a shiver up our spine. That's why I say it. There's an assumption often that rattles around, I think it, I think it is, in a, in a society that has largely enjoyed freedom and, 
and uh, social niceties related to Christianity, it's, it's bewildering oftentimes that someone would get so upset about the faith. And yet in the faithfulness of the preaching of the gospel, know that you're always, if you're doing it, you're always stirring up the recognition of sin in the life of another. And those are fighting words for so many of us. You, you think to yourself, you go, well, Nate, that's not so much true for me. So the last time that your, your wife mentioned to you a specific sin in your life and was addressing it, how did you respond? When your, when your child happened to note, you know, Mom, I think, you're, I think you're really angry right now. How did, what did your heart immediately do? Oh, honey, you're absolutely right. I'm such a sinner. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, maybe that happened. I pray it happened. But for many of us, we go, let me explain some stuff to you. That's on down the line from let me cut your head off. But it's in the same path. It's in the same path. The recognition of softness to the reality of our sin being addressed and a dealing with openly before the Lord honestly, the true offense that the gospel brings is the only way by which the good news becomes so sweet. When you realize you don't have to defend. You, you see, I, I love the way Stuart Olyot put it. I mean, he, he said, you know what Herodias was trying to do? She was trying to do what, to be honest, what we're all trying to do oftentimes in our lives. She was trying to silence the voice of her guilty conscience. And she thought if she could cut off the head of one, the ones whose tongue spoke those words, her conscience would be satisfied. And it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Maybe even Herod thought so. I, I don't know. But the text, it, it, why is Mark telling us this story? <laughs> why, is he, why is he telling it now? Well, well, did you notice? He's telling us because Herod had heard of this guy called Jesus. He'd killed John the Baptist some time back. But now he's heard of this guy called Jesus. And he hears he's doing wonders. And so he queries about this guy named Jesus. And he's starting to hear rumors about it. Yeah, some say he's a prophet. Some say he's Elijah. Others even say he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now be Herod for a moment. Immediately we're told in the text, Herod goes, it's John. It's, it's John whom, whom, I, whom I beheaded. He's, he's raised from the dead. Now we might go, well, that's silly talk. No, it's not. Not when your conscience is still plagued. You tell me, is Herod's conscience clear? It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. The conscience isn't outside. The conscience is inside. The inner voice. It may be provoked 
by the preaching of a prophet, by the communication of another. But it's a voice that once is awakened on the inside, needs someone to clear it, someone to silence it. And here's what's fascinating about the narrative of the Gospel of Mark, is that Herodias was onto something. <laughs> I thought I would never say that. She was onto something, like she got something right. The thing that she got right was that her conscience needed to be cleared and silenced, and it would take bloodshed for that to happen. It would take someone's blood. Not John the Baptist, but the one who would come and pay for the sins of all who would call upon his name in faith. Even the Lord Jesus Christ. That he would be the one that would come. And say I have paid the penalty for the sin. I have wiped the slate clean. The guilty conscience has been speaking to you about your need to be made right. And your, all your attempts to be made right have only made more of a mess of it. That's why I'm here Jesus says. That's why I've come. There is no rubbing of the spot out of your hands as Lady Macbeth would try to do. There's no rubbing the blood out. Everybody's stained. There's nothing one can do to get rid of that. That's why he's here, you see. And until you recognize that, oh, that's my condition. But, oh, that's why he's come. To take my sins that are as red as crimson, as red as the blood of John's that was shed. He has come to make me white as snow. As clear a conscience. That before Almighty God this morning, if, if I were, and I won't, so don't get fearful. If I were to say, Chad, Karen, Jim... Share with us the stories of darkness that Christ has paid for. And we with integrity could open up our hearts with the realness of the blackness that is there. And then immediately speak in the truth of the gospel and the assurance of faith. We would know. We don't have to hide behind our best performances or our reputations. That our identity would truly be those who were found in Jesus. Do you see we've got a long way to go, don't we? This gospel thing is something we must continue to grow in. And I just want to leave you with this question as you see the beauty of what it is that Christ has done and where he calls us with. Listen, Herod heard the gospel over and over. He was what we may actually call a seeker. Like he, he might would have ended up at a church service and you know, shook the hands of the pastor afterwards and said, hey, I'll see you next week. That was interesting. He, he might would have done that. Um, Herodias, probably not. Herod might would have, would have done that. He was, a, he was inquisitive of the gospel. Herodias was a gospel enemy, but you know what? Neither repented. Neither repented. And at some point, my friends, and the scripture seems clear on this, and I mean, there's actually a haunting place. I, I don't remember where it is. I think it's at the end of the gospel of Luke where Herod shows up again. And when he does, he's wanting to see a sign from Jesus. And he queries, you know, show me a sign. And you know what? Jesus, we're told, doesn't speak to him a word. Doesn't speak to him a word. 
Each time we hear the gospel and reject it, each time we are holding on to our sin over and over as the gospel is presented and we reject it, we run the risk of calcifying our souls against God. Herodias was an enemy of the gospel. Herod was an inquisitor of the gospel. Neither repented. What about you? Father in heaven, we would ask that that question would do its work. That you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, whether Christian or unbeliever here in this room together today, would speak into the consciences of our heart and know the freedom that is found when we come out of hiding into the light. Because you have given your Son... And he has paid the penalty of the sins of all of his people. Any who would call upon him in faith. We have no reason to fear. Let us not choose a temporal embarrassment over an eternal consequence. Let us be a people who walk in the truth of the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.